Well, a big thank you to Pastor Rob and Pastor John for preaching uh, in my absence and uh, taking you through so skillfully and meaningfully James chapter 3 and the great message there for us. But I'll have you turn this morning back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As we've been studying the book of Colossians together for a few weeks, we've seen that the theme is the gospel hope of Christ in you. Christ, our hope in life and death. Who is Jesus Christ? Your answer to this question can literally mean the difference between heaven and hell. Who is Jesus Christ? It's the greatest question anyone can answer. Jesus asked this same question of his disciples in Matthew 16, 13. Jesus asked his disciples and he said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus, of course, was the Son of Man, is the Son of Man. And his disciples said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That affirmation is the high point in Peter's life and faith. It is an affirmation that is required for entry into the kingdom of God. To affirm that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to look at just such an affirmation this morning in the words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Let me read it for you. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, and I'm going to read through verse 20 just to set the context a little bit more. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, being God's beloved Son, the Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything." For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross 
Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have such a clear picture here of who you truly are. And it is a glorious picture. It is one that is too high for us. We can't fully comprehend all of it. And yet it is one that is abundantly clear that you are in fact God. God who took on flesh and dwelt among us to secure our pardon and accomplish all that was necessary for our forgiveness that through faith in you and your finished work on the cross, your burial, your resurrection, we might have eternal life and peace with God forever. Thank you, Jesus. Remind us this morning and present us in perhaps new ways, a new understanding of just who it is that you truly are. And may we be, all of us, be moved to greater faith, worship, and adoration of your glorious person. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is the Christ? No greater question, no more important answer. And our souls lie in the, on the brink of how we answer that question. The Apostle Paul answers that question without mincing words, with great clarity. And here we have in the book of Colossians some of the highest Christology in all of the scriptures. A declaration that Jesus Christ is God. So I want us to see together this morning in verses 15 through 17 six descriptions of Christ's glorious identity. Six descriptions of Christ's glorious identity. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we see that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15. He, the Son, the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God. In verses 13 and 14 here, Paul has just referred to Jesus Christ as God's beloved Son, the one in whom Christians have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And now in verse 15, Paul expands on this description of Jesus Christ, having just barely briefly mentioned the beloved Son, Paul can't help himself but go off on the reality of who Jesus really is. And here in verse 15, Paul expands on that description. Who is this beloved son? Who is this one who has purchased our redemption and caused our sins to be forgiven? 
Now, verses 15 through 20 are written in poetic style. It's possible that Paul here is quoting from a commonly known creed or possibly even a well-known early Christian hymn that Paul here adapts for his own purposes. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 presents one of the most densely packed, extended descriptions of the Son of God in all the scriptures. With each carefully chosen verbal brushstroke, the Apostle Paul is painting for us a masterpiece of Christ's likeness in all of his glorious majesty. Paul begins this glorious description of Christ stating that he is the image of the invisible God. Now Paul uses a verb here that is in the present tense, but it's likely that it has a gnomic aspect, G-N-O-M-I-C, which simply means that the action of the verb is not time-specific. And so the verb is merely expressing a general truth that is true both in the past, it's true in the present, and it's true for the future. So when Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, he's saying that that is who Christ is. It is who Christ has always been, and it is who Christ will always be. This is who Christ is in his unchangeable essence. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? To be the image of the invisible God. Well, the word image means a perfect copy or an exact likeness. It refers to something that has the exact same form and qualities and characteristics as something else. So the first characteristic of the Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. That is to say that whatever form or qualities or characteristics are true of the invisible God, these are also true of Christ. The form, qualities, and characteristics that make God God are equally present and true of Christ. Colossians 2.9, Paul says something similar. In Colossians 2.9, he says, For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3 says that he, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word there is the eternal wisdom of God. The son of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word what? Was God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh, the incarnation, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. What kind of glory? Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth.
This is a truth that has been affirmed ever since God's revelation of it as truth. Ever since the scriptures, Christians have believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, He is God. Fully God, truly God. The Nicene Creed of the fourth century affirms Christ the Son to be God by saying that Christ is of one substance with the Father. And that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. The Athanasian Creed states the equality of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in this way. It's an extended quote, so just try to focus here a little bit. You can look it up, the Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son. And such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinities, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost, Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden to say that there are three gods or three lords. In this trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. What is the point of all this? The fact that Christ is, has been, and always will be the image of the invisible God means that Christ is God. Jesus is God. Jesus would say it himself in this way in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Christ the Son is the image of God in such a way that to see Christ is to see God. To see Jesus is to see God. God in the flesh. After the incarnation. 
Christ the Son is the image of God. John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so Jesus is the Word, the eternal Word, who in the beginning was with God and was God, who became a man, took on humanity, and revealed God to us. in a way that had never been done before. What you believe about Jesus matters, and it matters for eternity. There are all kinds of errors out there about the true identity of Jesus Christ. And many of these errors can be traced back to that ancient heresy of Arianism from the second Century, which denied that Christ was God. Arius asserted that Christ was created by the Father. So Christ was a created being, according to Arius. Arius denied that Christ was co-eternal with the Father, that Christ has always been. Arius denied that Christ was consubstantial with the Father, equal with the Father in essence, sharing the same essence as God. Well, that ancient heresy from the second and third centuries is still around with us today. Sadly, it's alive and well. Most cults and false religions today similarly deny the true divinity of Christ the Son including Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Scientology, Unitarian Universalists, Oneness Pentecostals, and Mormons. All of these belief systems deny the full deity of Jesus Christ, deny the clear teaching of scriptures, and damn themselves and their followers to eternal destruction. Say, well, that's pretty harsh. Well, that's what the scriptures teach us. To deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, equal with God in majesty and divinity is to damn your soul to hell. 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You can't have peace with God and deny that Jesus is God. You can't have forgiveness of sins and deny that Jesus was God in the flesh. You dismantle the very gospel itself. You throw away the key that unlocks the door of salvation by denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Contrary to what Arianism and many of the cults and false religions of our day say about Jesus, Jesus Christ wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a great moral example. He wasn't the first created being. 
He wasn't just the greatest human who's ever lived. No, he is eternally and unchangingly God, the very God of very God. And as such, he is worthy of our faith, our worship, our love, submission, and devotion. This is our glorious Christ. He is God. Secondly, and these will go a little faster. But you got to get that first one. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this term firstborn may seem a bit strange to us in reference to Christ, especially if Christ is God. How is God firstborn? How is he born at all? What does it mean? Especially if this term is to be understood without reference to time. He has always been the firstborn. He is the firstborn. He will always be the firstborn of all creation. So what does it mean? How can someone be firstborn in eternity past? Well, this term firstborn is being used here as a kind of metaphor. It's not referring to Christ's incarnation, his birth in Bethlehem. It's also not a statement that Christ is a created being, which would be a wrong understanding of this term. Christ had no beginning. Since he is God, he is eternal, right? We've already covered that. Unless this is a blatant contradiction, and it's not. Paul's smarter than that. Christ had no beginning. He is eternal. So what does firstborn mean? The term firstborn, as it is used here, is referring to Christ's position in reference to all else that is. He occupies the position of the firstborn, which in biblical times was the position of priority, of primacy, of honor, and of authority. The firstborn had authority and power over the others. Paul probably has in mind here Psalm 89, a messianic psalm foretelling of a future Davidic king. Listen to what Psalm 89, 27 says. I also shall make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, in Hebrew poetic parallelism, the first line is further made clear by the second line. So it says, I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. God's future messianic king would be his firstborn, which is then further explained as being the one who is the highest of the kings of the earth. That is the king of kings. If you're the highest king of all the kings, then you're the king of kings. So the firstborn is one who has priority and primacy over all others. The firstborn, as it is used here, is a statement of Christ's authority, his sovereignty, and his primacy over all things. He is the firstborn over all creation. Think of it that way. Christ here in Colossians 1.15 is said to be the firstborn of all creation. All creation includes everything that has been created. 
everything that exists outside of God himself. So Christ is said to be the firstborn over everything else. Christ is God the Son, and as God the Son, he is firstborn over all creation. And as firstborn over all creation, he has power, authority, and priority over all else that is. Christ is king. He who bore the cross also wears the crown. Christ is firstborn. He has the first place. He has preeminence. Thirdly, Christ is the creator of all creation. Paul continues in verse 16. For by him all things were created. This is a clear statement of Christ's role in the creation. Christ was the agent of all creation. He was the one doing the action. He was the one speaking the worlds into existence. He was the one saying, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. Christ was the active agent in bringing creation into being. John 1.3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So what does Christ's creative activity include? Everything. Everything that is, everything that came into being out of nothingness, Christ created. Hebrews 1-2, in these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God made the world through Christ, the Son. The Son was the agent who did the creating. But not in such a way as it was independent of the Father or independent of the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit always work together. They always work in coordination. They never work independently of one another. For they are one, in essence. Co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial. Now, just in case you need help in understanding what all things means, Paul is there for you. He's got your back. All right, so look with me. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. So what does all things mean? Well, things in heaven and on earth. So things down here and things up there. If that's not enough, we'll say things visible and invisible. Things we can see and things we can't see. Things that are material and things that are immaterial. Immaterial. 
And then Paul makes clear that this last category of things, things invisible, even includes unseen spirit beings. Whether angels or demons in all their ranks and classifications. Now, this was an important point to establish and reestablish and reaffirm and remind the Colossians about. One aspect of the false teaching that was going on in the church there in Colossae was an overestimation of the power and significance of angels in the individual's life. And it was an overemphasis at the expense of the supremacy and preeminence of Christ. And so Paul is reminding them here that Christ is the one who created all things. And this even includes unseen spirit beings in all their ranks and positions. As great as angelic beings are, as powerful as they are, as much as they don't have many of the human limitations that we do, nevertheless, they are less than Christ, for Christ is their creator. Christ, the Son of God, created all things. He is the creator of all that is. And this sets him apart from all creation and gives him an inherent authority and supremacy and makes him deserving of our honor and devotion. As his creatures. Fourthly, Christ is the end of all creation. And by end here, I mean goal. All creation has been made for Christ. All that is, all that exists, has one purpose behind it. The glory of Christ. Notice what is said at the end of verse 16. All things have been created through Christ and for Christ. Christ created all things with a purpose. And that purpose... The purpose of all things continues to this very day and it is a purpose that will be fulfilled. The purpose of all creation is for Christ, unto Christ, for Christ's glory. Christ created all that is and he created all that is for his own glory. You have been given life for a purpose. And that purpose, make no mistake about it, is the glory of Christ. Are we living in light of that purpose this morning? The purpose for which we've been given life. The purpose for which we've been created. To bring glory to our creator, Christ himself. Christ the Son. Now the fact that all creation has been made to give glory to Christ is not to say that God the Father receives no glory from creation. Of course we know that's not true. 
One day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father is glorified when Christ is exalted and given his rightful place as firstborn, as preeminent, as the sovereign king and the ruler and the creator. It's all been made for him. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And yet we must add that while all members of the Trinity share commonly in the glory that is to come, passages such as this one and the passage in Ephesians 1.10 teach that there is a special glory reserved for Christ by nature of his role as creator and redeemer. And so Paul is emphasizing here that all that is exists for the glory of Christ. He's doing so because of the present context in Colossae. Christ's preeminence and his centrality were being diminished among the people of God. They're saying, well, oh, yeah, Christ, yeah, obviously Christ, but this other stuff, wow. This truth was a needed correction and reminder to the people of God as it remains an important reminder and correction for the people of God today. Christ is the end of all creation. He is the goal. He is the purpose. Fifthly, Christ pre-existed all creation. He is the pre-existent one. Verse 17 states that Christ is before all things. The emphasis here is on his temporal priority. Before any of creation existed, Christ existed. Christ existed before the world began. How could the creator of the world not exist if he is simply a part of the creation of the world? Christ existed before the world began. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In other words, when the beginning began, the Word already was. When the beginning began, the Word already was. His preexistence. John 17, 5, Jesus prayed before he goes to the cross. He says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Clearly a statement of his preexistence. Christ precedes creation, and this creation includes all time. Before there was time, Christ already was. Christ the Son, along with the rest of the Godhead, all pre-existing in eternity past. Too much for our minds to conceive. We're so time-bound. And yet that is the reality of our Christ's existence. 
This too sets Christ apart from the rest of creation and makes him deserving of our worship, our honor, our submission. He is glorious. Finally, Christ sustains all creation. Christ sustains all creation. Again, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only does Christ pre exist the creation, not only is he the purpose for the creation, not only is the agent of creation, not only is the sovereign over creation, but he is also the one who sustains the creation. He holds it all together. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, Christ is not some divine watchmaker who, having created all things, simply wound the watch of creation and let it go and stepped back and said, well, we'll see how this turns out. No, he is actively holding it all together. Aren't you glad? Even up to this very moment, without Christ's sustaining power, the universe and everything in it would cease to exist. Which means, of course, that we owe our very existence to him. We owe our next hour of life to him. We owe our next meal to him. We owe our next breath to him. We owe our next heartbeat to Christ. He is the sustainer of the creation. He is sustaining and holding together you and I at this very moment. He is not a created being. He is not the first created being. He is not the highest created being. He is not a created being at all. He is separate and apart from the rest of his creation. He is God. He is eternal. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the whole purpose for which all things have been made. He is the glorious, transcendent Christ, the Son of God. And yet this glorious, transcendent creator Christ humbled himself and took the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of man for you and for me, he went to the cross and humbled himself and died. Why? So that our sins could be forgiven, so that we might have peace with God, so that we might be given eternal life and all of it to the praise of his glorious name. If you're not a Christian here today, or you're unsure about your soul, this is Jesus Christ. This is who came for you. This is who died for you. This is who loves you and invites you to come to him. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and he promises you, you rest for your souls. He promises you life and joy and peace eternal. 
If you'll but trust him. Confess him as Lord. And believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Trust him today. Believer, this morning I want to remind you that this same Christ who is before all things and is creator of all things and who is the end of all things, this same Christ loves you. He dwells within you. And he is for you. Always, unceasingly, eternally for you. The very power that spoke the worlds into existence, that same power that is holding all things together, is actively at work inside you through Christ the Son. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This morning, in these few verses, we have seen Christ's glorious identity as the image of God, the firstborn over all creation, the creator of all things, the end of all things, the one who is preexistent before all things, and the sustainer of all things. This is our glorious Christ As the Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said, Christ is the most sparkling diamond in the ring of glory. Indeed. Christ is our greatest need. And ultimately, Christ is all we need. He is supreme over all things. And he is sufficient for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the image of the invisible God. You are the firstborn over all creation. You are the creator of all things. You are the end for which all things were created. You are the sustainer of all things. All that we have, all that we are, we owe to you, the giver of life. We know that apart from you, we would not exist. Apart from you, we would not be. And we also confess this morning that apart from you, we have no hope. For we are sinners, lost and needy. We can't save ourselves. No amount of good works or self-improvement can ever bring us to a place of peace with God. Our sins are too great. They are too many. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. Even our good deeds are tainted with Impure motives and pride and selfishness. Without you, Jesus, we are hopeless. 
but with you, Jesus, we have the settled certainty of forgiveness and eternal life. All because of who you truly are. Your glorious identity. Christ, the Son of God, the image of God, the ruler over all creation. We love you and worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.